Part three, chapters twenty-five and twenty-six of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter twenty-five, of discipline in democratic armies. It is a very general opinion especially in aristocratic countries, that the great social equality which prevails in democracies ultimately renders the private soldier independent of the officer, and thus destroys the bond of discipline. This is a mistake, for there are two kinds of discipline, which it is important not to confound. When the officer is noble and the soldier a serf, one rich, the other poor, the former educated and strong, the latter ignorant and weak, the strictest bond of obedience may easily be established between the two men. The soldier is broken in to military discipline, as it were, before he enters the army. Or rather, military discipline is nothing but an enhancement of social servitude. In aristocratic armies, the soldier will soon become insensible to everything but the orders of his superior officers. He acts without reflection, triumphs without enthusiasm, and dies without complaint. In this state, he is no longer a man, but he is still a most formidable animal trained for war. A democratic people must despair of ever obtaining from soldiers that blind, minute, submissive, and invariable obedience which an aristocratic people may impose on them without difficulty. The state of society does not prepare them for it, and the nation might be in danger of losing its natural advantages if it sought artificially to acquire advantages of this particular kind. Amongst democratic communities, Military discipline ought not to attempt to annihilate the free spring of the faculties. All that can be done by discipline is to direct it. The obedience thus inculcated is less exact, but it is more eager and more intelligent. It has its root in the will of him who obeys. It rests not only on his instinct, but on his reason, and consequently it will often spontaneously become more strict as danger requires it. The discipline of an aristocratic army is apt to be relaxed in war, because that discipline is founded upon habits, and war disturbs those habits. The discipline of a democratic army, on the contrary, is strengthened in sight of the enemy, because every soldier then clearly perceives that he must be silent and obedient in order to conquer. The nations which have performed the greatest warlike achievements knew no other discipline than that which I speak of. Amongst the ancients, none were admitted into the armies but freemen and citizens, who differed but little from one another, and were accustomed to treat each other as equals. In this respect, it may be said that the armies of antiquity were democratic, although they came out of the bosom of aristocracy. The consequence was that in those armies a sort of fraternal familiarity prevailed between the officers and the men. Plutarch's lives of great commanders furnished convincing instances of the fact the soldiers were in the constant habit of freely addressing their general, and the general listened to and answered whatever the soldiers had to say. They were kept in order by language and by example, far more than by constraint or punishment. The general was as much their companion as their chief. I know not whether the soldiers of Greece and Rome ever carried the minutiae of military discipline to the same degree of perfection as the Russians have done, but this did not prevent Alexander from conquering Asia and Rome, the world. Chapter 26 Some Considerations on War in Democratic Communities 
when the principle of equality is in growth not only amongst a single nation but amongst several neighbouring nations at the same time as is now the case in europe the inhabitants of these different countries notwithstanding the dissimilarity of language of customs and of laws nevertheless resemble each other in their equal dread of war and their common love of peace footnote it is scarcely necessary for me to observe that the dread of war displayed by the nations of europe is not solely attributable to the progress made by the principle of equality amongst them independently of this permanent cause several other accidental causes of great weight might be pointed out and i may mention before all the rest the extreme lassitude which the wars of the revolution and the empire have left behind them and footnote it is in vain that ambition or anger puts arms in the hands of princes they are appeased in spite of themselves by a species of general apathy and good will which makes the sword drop from their grasp and wars become more rare as the spread of equality taking place in several countries at once simultaneously impels their various inhabitants to follow manufacturers and commerce not only do their tastes grow alike but their interests are so mixed and entangled with one another that no nation can inflict evils on other nations without those evils falling back upon itself and all nations ultimately regard war as a calamity almost as severe to the conqueror as to the conquered thus on the one hand it is extremely difficult in democratic ages to draw nations into hostilities but on the other hand it is almost impossible that any two of them should go to war without embroiling the rest the interests of all are so interlaced their opinions and their wants so much alike that none can remain quiet when the others stir wars therefore become more rare but when they break out they spread over a larger field neighbouring democratic nations not only become alike in some respects but they eventually grow to resemble each other in almost all footnote this is not only because these nations have the same social condition but it arises from the very nature of that social condition which leads men to imitate and identify themselves with each other when the members of a community are divided into castes and classes they not only differ from one another but they have no taste and no desire to be alike on the contrary everyone endeavours more and more to keep his own opinions undisturbed to retain his own peculiar habits and to remain himself the characteristics of individuals are very strongly marked when the state of society amongst the people is democratic that is to say when there are no longer any castes or classes in the community and all its members are nearly equal in education and in property the human mind follows the opposite direction men are much alike and they are annoyed as it were by any deviation from that likeness far from seeking to preserve their own distinguishing singularities they endeavour to shake them off in order to identify themselves with the general mass of the people which is the sole representative of right and of might to their eyes the characteristics of individuals are nearly obliterated in the ages of aristocracy even those who are naturally alike strive to create imaginary differences between themselves in the ages of democracy even those who are not alike seek only to become so and to copy each other so strongly is the mind of every man always carried away by the general impulse of mankind something of the same kind may be observed between nations two nations having the same aristocratic social condition might remain thoroughly distinct and extremely different because the spirit of aristocracy is to retain strong individual characteristics 
but if two neighbouring nations have the same democratic social condition, they cannot fail to adopt similar opinions and manners, because the spirit of democracy tends to assimilate men to each other. End footnote. This similitude of nations has consequences of great importance in relation to war. If I inquire why it is that the Helvetic Confederacy made the greatest and most powerful nations of Europe tremble in the fifteenth century, whilst at the present day the power of that country is exactly proportioned to its population, I perceive that the Swiss are become like all the surrounding communities, and those surrounding communities like the Swiss, such that as numerical strength now forms the only difference between them, victory necessarily attends the largest army. Thus, one of the consequences of the democratic revolution which is going on in Europe is to make numerical strength preponderate on all fields of battle, and to constrain all small nations to incorporate themselves with large states, or at least to adopt the policy of the latter. As numbers are the determining cause of victory, each people ought, of course, to strive by all the means in its power to bring the greatest possible number of men into the field. When it was possible to enlist a kind of troops superior to all others, such as the Swiss infantry or the French horse of the sixteenth century, it was not thought necessary to raise very large armies, but the case is altered when one soldier is as efficient as another. The same cause which begets this new want also supplies means of satisfying it, for, as I have already observed, when men are all alike, they are all weak and the supreme power of the state is naturally much stronger amongst democratic nations than elsewhere. Hence, whilst these nations are desirous of enrolling the whole male population in the ranks of the army, they have the power of effecting this object. The consequence is that in democratic ages armies seem to grow larger in proportion as the love of war declines. In the same ages, too, the manner of carrying on war is likewise altered by the same causes. Machiavelli observes in The Prince, quote, that it is much more difficult to subdue a people which has a prince and his barons for its leaders than a nation which is commanded by a prince and his slaves. End quote. To avoid offence, let us read Public Functionaries for Slaves, and this important truth will be strictly applicable to our own times. A great aristocratic people cannot either conquer its neighbours or be conquered by them without great difficulty. It cannot conquer them, because all its forces can never be collected and held together for a considerable period. It cannot be conquered, because an enemy meets at every step small centres of resistance by which invasion is arrested. War against an aristocracy may be compared to war in a mountainous country. The defeated party has constant opportunities of rallying its forces to make a stand in a new position. Exactly the reverse occurs amongst democratic nations. They easily bring their whole disposable force into the field, and when the nation is wealthy and populous, it soon becomes victorious. But if ever it is conquered, and its territory invaded, it has few resources at command, and if the enemy takes the capital, the nation is lost. This may very well be explained, as each member of the community is individually isolated and extremely powerless, no one of the whole body can either defend himself or present a rallying point to others. Nothing is strong in a democratic country except the state. As the military strength of the state is destroyed by the destruction of the army, and its civil power paralyzed by the capture of the chief city, all that remains is only a multitude 
without strength or government, unable to resist the organized power by which it is assailed. I am aware that this danger may be lessened by the creation of provincial liberties, and consequently of provincial powers, but this remedy will always be insufficient. For, after such a catastrophe, not only is the population unable to carry on hostilities, but it may be apprehended that they will not be inclined to attempt it. In accordance with the law of nations adopted in civilized countries, the object of wars is not to seize the property of private individuals, but simply to get possession of political power. The destruction of private property is only occasionally resorted to for the purpose of attaining the latter object. When an aristocratic country is invaded after the defeat of its army, the nobles, although they are at the same time the wealthiest members of the community, will continue to defend themselves individually rather than submit. For, if the conqueror remained master of the country, he would deprive them of their political power, to which they cling even more closely than to their property. They therefore prefer fighting to subjection, which is to them the greatest of all misfortunes, and they readily carry the people along with them, because the people has long been used to follow and obey them, and besides has but little to risk in the war. Amongst a nation in which equality of conditions prevails, each citizen, on the contrary, has but slender share of political power, and often has no share at all. On the other hand, all are independent, and all have something to lose, so that they are much less afraid of being conquered, and much more afraid of war, than an aristocratic people. It will always be extremely difficult to decide a democratic population to take up arms, when hostilities have reached its own territory. Hence the necessity of giving to such a people the rights and the political character which may impart to every citizen some of those interests that cause the nobles to act for the public welfare in aristocratic countries. It should never be forgotten by the princes and other leaders of democratic nations that nothing but the passion and the habit of freedom can maintain an advantageous contest with the passion and the habit of physical well-being. I can conceive nothing better prepared for subjection in case of defeat than a democratic people without free institutions. Formerly it was customary to take the field with a small body of troops, to fight in small engagements, and to make long, regular sieges. Modern tactics consist in fighting decisive battles, and, as soon as a line of march is open before the army, in rushing upon the capital city, in order to terminate the war at a single blow. Napoleon, it is said, was the inventor of this new system. But the invention of such a system did not depend on any individual man, whoever he might be. The mode in which Napoleon carried on war was suggested to him by the state of society in his time. That mode was successful, because it was eminently adapted to that state of society, and because he was the first to employ it. Napoleon was the first commander who marched at the head of an army from capital to capital but the road was opened for him by the ruin of feudal society. It may fairly be believed that, if that extraordinary man had been born three hundred years ago, he would not have derived the same results from his method of warfare, or rather, that he would have had a different method. I shall add but a few words on civil wars, for fear of exhausting the patience of the reader. Most of the remarks which I have made respecting foreign wars are applicable a fortiori to civil wars. Men living in democracies are not naturally prone to the military character. They sometimes assume it when they have been dragged by compulsion to the field, 
but to rise in a body and voluntarily to expose themselves to the horrors of war and especially of civil war is a course which the men of democracies are not apt to adopt none but the most adventurous members of the community consent to run into such risks the bulk of the population remains motionless but even if the population were inclined to act considerable obstacles would stand in their way for they can resort to no old and well-established influence which they are willing to obey no well-known leaders to rally the discontented as well as to discipline and to lead them no political powers subordinate to the supreme power of the nation which afford an effectual support to the resistance directed against the government in democratic countries the moral power of the majority is immense and the physical resources which it has at its command are out of all proportion to the physical resources which may be combined against it therefore the party which occupies the seat of the majority which speaks in its name and wields its power triumphs instantaneously and irresistibly over all private resistance it does not even give such opposition time to exist but nips it in the bud those who in such nations seek to effect a revolution by force of arms have no other resource than suddenly to seize upon the whole engine of government as it stands which can better be done by a single blow than by a war for as soon as there is a regular war the party which represents the state is always certain to conquer the only case in which a civil war could arise is if the army should divide itself into two factions the one raising the standard of rebellion the other remaining true to its allegiance an army constitutes a small community very closely united together endowed with great powers of vitality and able to supply its own wants for some time such a war might be bloody but it could not be long for either the rebellious army would gain over the government by the sole display of its resources or by its first victory and then the war would be over or the struggle would take place and then that portion of the army which should not be supported by the organized powers of the state would speedily either disband itself or be destroyed it may therefore be admitted as a general truth that in ages of equality civil wars will become much less frequent and less protracted footnote it should be borne in mind that i speak here of sovereign and independent democratic nations not of confederate democracies in confederacies as the preponderating power always resides in spite of all political fictions in the state governments and not in the federal government civil wars are in fact nothing but foreign wars in disguise and footnote end of part 3 chapter 26